There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Deconstructive Criticism. My name is Aaron Flam, and today we'll be talking with journalist Annika Hanroth Rothstein about being deported from Venezuela. Annika has been a guest on this show before when we talked about her reporting from Venezuela and the ongoing crisis in that country. Annika is an accomplished journalist that has been published in National Review and Washington Examiner, among other publications. If you want to know more about me or this podcast, please go to www.aronflam.com, that's Aaron with one A, and Flam with one M at the end, and then .com, so that's fairly easy. And you can support my work as well by, for instance, buying a t-shirt or a mug. But first, let's hear what Annika has to say. Enjoy. We're uh, speaking English. Welcome back to Deconstructive Criticism. It's uh, the third time in a season. It's, uh, I think, a record for any of my guests. Wow, quite the yes. honor, huh? Well, uh, a doubtful <laughs> one in this case. So, uh, are you back in Sweden? 
I am back in Sweden. Yes. They um, kick you out. They regrettably you out. so. Yeah, they kick you out of the country. They did kick me out of the country. Yes. Um, why? Just, why? Well, I mean, that depends on who you ask. I assume. I mean, I was kicked out for being a journalist. I was deported. Uh, the official reason that I got a couple of days after I got back was that I did not have accreditation, which is of course a pretty commonly used reason to kick journalists out of countries yeah. where journalism is a, is a very difficult and perilous task. Um, so yeah, that was the official reason. But you and do have accreditation. accreditation. No. You don't have I mean, I have from, from my employer, but that's not the same thing as being on the roster of, you know, officially being granted permission to be there by the government of Venezuela. So tell but, me, what happened then? Well, I mean, it was, a, it was short and not so sweet. I arrived on the 18th to, um, well, my, my biggest reason this time for being there was actually to celebrate Passover. I was writing about celebrating Passover uh, which I thought was a very sort of poetic and romantic thing to be doing in Venezuela this year. And I had everything set up to do that. And given that Passover started on, on the evening of the 19th, I arrived around 3 p.m. Uh, local time in Caracas. And then as soon as I got into the line, the immigration line, I mean, obviously, you're always a little bit tense entering the country. You're a little bit hyper aware, if you will. But I made eye contact with a woman, one of the, the women in the, um, that were at the counter. And you can tell sometimes by the way someone makes eye contact with you that they know you. Yeah. Or and you. Yeah, she, well, she knew me and she immediately looked at her phone. So she made eye contact and then looked at her phone. And I thought, uh-oh. So I started texting friends and contacts that were already in Caracas. And I said, I have sort of a bad feeling. So if you don't hear from me within 30 minutes, do something like make some noise was basically what I said. They said, Oh, it's probably fine. Like maybe they do know you, maybe they're keeping their eye on you. That's probable, but that doesn't mean that you won't be let into the country. So I thought, okay, fine. I get up to the counter and immediately they start asking me pretty nonsensical questions that I hadn't been asked before, such as, do you have a paper receipt for your, your hotel? Which is something that obviously you don't have to have that, but they, I now know they were buying time. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't understand it uh, at the time. And I said, no, but you know, I can get one if that's necessary. Just let me text my friend and he'll, he'll make sure that I have one. They said, no, sorry, you can't use your phone. So I said, okay, so then what? They said, well, we'll call the hotel. I said, fine, I have the number. They leave, this guy leaves for 20 seconds and comes back and he said, no, you don't have a reservation. And I said, well, I, I know for a fact that I do. And in the meantime, I had kind of put my, my hand in my purse and texted anyway and asked my, my colleague, my Venezuelan colleague to like send me a receipt right now. So I take out my phone and said, actually, I have the receipt right here. And they said, well, don't worry about it. Just stay right here. Mm -hmm. So they put me sort of in the corner of the room. And then after 10 minutes, four soldiers walk out, uh, GNB soldiers in full uniform. And then I realized that, okay, this is whatever's happening now is going to be bad or worse. And they talk amongst themselves for a while and said, come with us, which is 
again, not a great thing to hear anywhere and definitely not there. And they lead me to the back of, of the arrival hall and a room that says special security. And, you know, you don't know what's going to be on the other side of that room. I was actually relieved when I saw that there was actually security personnel there. And they start taking out my stuff to tell me to take off my shoes, take off my jewelry. They don't look at any of these things. They don't care. Again, they're buying time. And a fifth soldier comes and he's carrying a piece of paper. I asked to see the piece of paper. He says no, but I do see what, what it says on the top of the piece of paper. And it says uh, military intelligence on it, the uh, abbreviation for the Venezuelan military intelligence. And then I realized, oh, like this is very, very serious because it's not, it's not police, it's not military, it's military intelligence, which is sort of the second to, to the top, second from the top tier uh, as far as danger goes and as far as you know, seriousness goes. So they lead me down to the departure hall. After doing this, they lead me down to the departure hall. And at this point, you know, I'm getting really upset and I take up my phone anyway and I text my colleague and I said, I'm pretty sure they're going to deport me. And he says, okay, all we can do right now is make a lot of noise. So while I'm walking with these soldiers, getting more and more upset, my friends and my contacts in the country and around the world are tweeting about this. And basically saying that a Swedish journalist is about to get deported. And, you know, it's, I realized that there's really nothing you can do once they've made the decision, but either way, I wanted someone to know. And I was hoping against hope that they, something could change, that someone would wield some sort of influence and make a change. We get to the desk of the, the, the Air France desk at the departure hall. And that was one of the more upsetting things because of course, no one is talking to me. I'm asking questions all the time. What have I done wrong? What are the charges? Why am I being removed from the country? What's happening? Where's the documentation? Can I have a translator? You know, can I have someone present? I have the right to have someone present if there are charges against me and no one is saying anything, you know, I'm giving nothing they've taken my passport. So I have no passport at this point. One of the soldiers have my passport. They go up to the Air France desk and Air France immediately complies with them. And no one speaks to me, which is another issue that I'm, you know, kind of fighting right now. The fact that, you know, I bought a service from this company and they don't even speak to me. They just listen to the military and do as they say, which I'm somewhat uncomfortable with now in hindsight. Um, and then the soldier, one of the younger soldiers who actually ends up speaking English He's obviously quite uncomfortable. Three of them are very rude and very rough with me, but one of them is obviously wants nothing to do with this and is really uncomfortable because at this point I'm visibly upset. And he says, you know, I'm sorry, you're being deported. This is political. You're getting in the middle of something. This is not about you. You've just got gotten mixed up in something. I'm so sorry. And I'm being rude with him just because I'm upset and I need someone to be rude with. But this poor guy, you know, he obviously is trying to make me feel better. But then I send a series of tweets because I told him I'm going to take my phone out. I'm going to use it because they're putting me on a plane. He says, okay. So I tweet out, you know, a ser series of four or five tweets when I basically say I'm being deported. I have no idea why I don't have my passport. I don't have anything. I don't know where my suitcase is and I've done nothing wrong. And then two of the soldiers escort me aboard the Air France flight. And now I, of course, understand why they were trying to, you know, waste a lot of time because they don't want me 
loose in the departure hall. So they were trying to, you know, get time to pass as best they could by asking all of these questions and looking through my stuff. And so I'm escorted to the back of the flight by two soldiers, which in itself is a humiliating experience because everyone is, of course, is wondering, what is the, you know, what did she do? And no one asks you. So you're just sitting there like a criminal. I had nothing, um, not even my passport. I'm giving this little tiny slip of paper where they said, you know, police will come get you when you land in Paris and you will be taken to the police station. And there you can ask for your passport back. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's all I'm told um, until, you know, nine hours later, you know, armed police, French police come and pick me up in my seats and bring me to the police station. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I read some of the stuff uh, that you sent me and then I, I, I've, uh, I follow you on Twitter as well, as you mm-hmm. know. Uh, so you're called Miss Mossad now. I am, yes. So, of course... You know, what happens is when you have, well, you know this better than I do, because I believe you have significantly bigger Twitter presence than I do. But once you once you have enough followers, it goes around the world quite quickly. And because I've been writing about and from Venezuela for a long time, people who are involved in this issue and who care a lot about press freedom and freedom in general, um, of course, got righteously pissed off when they saw that this had happened to me and it made a lot of noise and probably more noise within Venezuela than maybe the government expected. So, and the government supporters expected. So of course there's this counter attack, um, which should supposedly explain why I was removed. So there's been a whole network of trolls attacking me in the past week saying that, you know, I'm a Mossad agent because I am Jewish, because I have ties to American think tanks. I was put there. I was placed inside of Venezuela, apparently to take down the government. I'm, you know, a secret imperialist, all of these things, uh, which of course is describing me kind of power that I'm, you know, as my best friend said, she said, I had no idea you were so all powerful that you, you know, you alone can go inside a country and take it down. But they're using everything and the kitchen sink and kind of throwing it at me now. And the Jewish angle, as always, is is front and center of that. So yeah, I saw some of it. Right. So I'm being called a, a Mossad agent and, you know, imperialist pig and all of these things. So, yeah, so let's get to the, the first question then. Um, are you a Zionist? Oh, yes. Because I found an article that says you're a Zionist. Yeah, and that is that is actually correct. I am. Uh, a Zionist. And what does that mean to you? Well, I'm a supporter of the Jewish state and the right for Jews, for us Jews, to have a state of our own, and the recognition of the state of Israel and the building of the state of Israel. And that, in short, is what it is to be a Zionist. It's not even nowadays. It's not even that much of a political statement, I think. I mean, it's it's now being attached to all of these different things, but to me, it's just a very simple fact. It's like saying I'm a Jew. Because Israel exists. Israel exists, and, and what I'm saying when I say I'm a Zionist is that I recognize the right for Israel exi- Israel to exist. And and also, I guess, in you know in a larger sense, um, my will to, to keep building that country. But you don't live there. Hmm? You don't live there. I don't. And I think that's what's difficult for a lot of people to understand that Jews are more than one thing. 
It's more than a religious identity. It's peoplehood. It's all of these things and a connection to a land that you don't necessarily live in. And that's why it's so easy to slander Jews with a word that is actually a beautiful, a beautiful thing and a very, very simple and simplistic statement that after millennia of persecution, we have a state of our own and that I celebrate that. And also, I mean, if, if um, you know anything about intelligence services, you would know that no one would hire me. <laughs> I do know that. But most people don't know you, uh, Annika. That, that's the thing. The, the first thing I thought when uh, you told me you were accused of being a Mossad agent, I was like, no, nah, they, don't, they don't recruit people that are... I mean, you're not a very discreet person. <laughs> Which is the, the most diplomatic way to put it. I mean, this is people... It's laughable because... My entire life, for better or worse, is out there, right? And also, yep. on my Twitter, it says, I'm the Jew that Mel Gibson warned you about. Like, that's my little tagline. So if I'm trying to hide something, I'm yeah. doing a really bad job of it, right? Well, so, or you're hiding in plain sight. It's either or, isn't it? Oh, I see. Is this? I, yeah, of course. Well, yeah, I'm, also, I'm going to give uh, the, um, what was it called? The Orinoco Times? Yeah, it actually... It was originally published in something that is called Mission Verdad, which is a government uh, I'm sorry, it's called the yeah. Orinoco Tribune. Mm -hmm. So uh, full credit, yeah. Yes, I did read it. <laughs> and I also read their stance on Zionism, which oh, cool. they have published in English. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I did not they get that. They consider it a racist ideology of, uh, well, I guess racial supremacy. Oh, I see. Wow. Okay. Well, That's... it's not a very unusual opinion <laughs> to hold, uh, especially if you're on the left in South America. Right. I mean, I guess that's true. It's just, to me, it's, it becomes ridiculous after, at a certain point also because I, I know how vulnerable I've been in this process and during these three months of reporting. Well, you've been there sort of since day one with all these interviews. and I haven't been there. I've right. just well, Skyped you. Uh, right. So I've been quite safe here in Stockholm, or relatively safe. <laughs> True, but it's it's interesting to me because not only have I, you know, been put in very vulnerable positions, but also I've taken so many steps to be fair in what is a very unfair situation. I've been trying so hard to cover all sides of this, and and I've been hated by everybody. I think from the left to the right in in this process by going into areas, you know, covering colectivos giving sometimes, you know, a very measured, giving very measured opinions on very difficult things, everything from the Venezuelan government to the colectivos and, <coughs> you know, not slamming anyone and definitely not seeking to overthrow or malign anyone. And well, which is why, yeah. You are an anti-socialist that we can be clear, clear <laughs> about. It's, uh, it's I mean, because I have interviewed you, so I have you on tape saying this is socialism. I think thing. also I have myself on the record <clears throat> saying that numerous times, and I have very clear political ideologies, and I, I think that's also why it becomes ridiculous when you see an article like that saying, aha, got you. Well, we'll, we'll come to the Orinoco Tribune okay, cool. yeah. soon. You didn't give me enough time, really, to do research, because I do prefer to have a week or two. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, but um, but what? Um, so they accuse you of being an activist, right? 
Exactly. Because you have taken sides according to the regime, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, according to them, I will say that there are, if I'm going to agree to something, I would say that, of course, I gave a statement publicly in the National Assembly. Yes. Which, which you were asked if you were to take sides, and you said you can't take sides, yeah. but you would prefer to be on the side of freedom. Yeah, which is, to me, not a very radical statement. Um I mean, to me, it's it sort of should be second nature to anyone. And what I did there and what I was very careful to do was that I spoke about I was invited to speak about my experience being taken by the colectivos and held at gunpoint. And that was what I spoke about. Not once did I mention the government, not once did I malign anyone. What I did was speak about something that was obviously criminal activity to hold a journalist at gunpoint, threatening their lives and, you know, slapping them across the face. And for me, it's it's bizarre to be called an activist by calling out what it was obviously a crime committed. So calling me an activist, yes, I was on, on the side geographically. I was in the home of the opposition telling that story. But they but, also accuse you of being very close to a lot of the opposition. in the Right, in- and the reason, yeah. I mean, I think what they were saying between the lines was actually they're, they're alluding to me having a relationship with a, a particular person within the opposition even, mm-hmm. uh, which has also been a very popular um, type of commentary on the internet in the past week, that apparently the reason I'm so involved is that I have an opposition boyfriend, which, you know, for the record, I don't. Um, you know, I'm still gloriously single. Uh, however, you know, I... be noted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want the internet to know because it's important. It's hard out there for a single Jewess. So the point is that I have tried to get access to the government. I have tried for three months to get access to every level of the government. If I was invited to go speak with the government uh, and to speak about my experience in Venezuela publicly in the same halls before the government, I would 100% do that. If I was allowed to sit down with Maduro, I would do that. If I was allowed to sit down with Diosdado, I would do that. And I have tried and tried and tried. But the issue in Venezuela is that the people that will grant me access are opposition, which is also why I've taken extraordinary steps and put myself in danger to go to places that are only accessed by Chavistas, that are only accessed by colectivos, to give a very fair and balanced view in a place that where no one does that because it's easy you know, it's easy to say, oh, you know, Guaido is God. Now I'll go back into, you know, to comfortable Europe again and do my reports from there. But I didn't do that. I kept staying, you know, even though it's like I'm having this very difficult. It's like a romantic relationship, a very tumultuous romantic relationship where you keep being treated like shit, but you keep coming back uh, and feeling the love regardless. And that's sort of my relationship with Venezuela that I keep coming back and trying to give fair assessments of a very difficult situation, which is why I a, don't really understand why they deported me in the first place, because, you know, this doesn't look good for anybody. And having me in there and allowing me the access would probably be a better course of action, you know, in my humble opinion. Well, but I would, the, the other yeah. line of uh, attack against you in the, let's find out what they were called, Orinoco Tribune. Mm-hmm. They're getting a lot of shout-outs today, yeah. They, they, and they will get more. <laughs> they will awesome. get more shout-outs. Yeah. So uh, they accuse you of being too close to Sheldon Adelson, 
mm-hmm. which is a rich American Jew, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, the rich American Jew, from what I've heard, yes. Well, there are several, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, fair uh, enough. And, and, uh, and a part of the Tikva Fund, which mm-hmm. is a Zionist organization. Yeah, it is, and also politically conservative, which is, you know... That too. That yeah, too. so it's all of those things. And yeah, I've studied at the Tikva Fund in New York, and I think it even says so on my Wikipedia. Like, it says so everywhere. It's on my Wikipedia. It's out there. So it's, it's not a the- secret. No, and I'm quite proud of it. I mean, it's a very distinguished place, and, and I've learned a lot. And this is a think tank where you study under a lot of very distinguished, knowledgeable professors. And I've studied religion there. I've studied, you know, freedom of speech, uh, military issues, all of these things, because this is my line of work, of course. These are the things I cover as a journalist, and I've never But tried how to do you hide. view journalism? Because I've read a few articles of you, and you are quite emotional. I am. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what put me in this position. It's, it's the blessing of the curse of it all that I kind of walk into these situations heart first. And even, you know, my security Always brain first. No, I can't. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not like, I'm not on that whole, you no. know, Jordan train. I don't do that. Like this is I, what I, I'm, I'm all heart sort of. And that's why I think, I think why people respond to the work that I do, because I'm obviously emotionally invested. Some would say that that's not okay for a journalist to put so much of themselves into it. And to I would some, be one of those people, actually. Yeah. But, and I but, seen, but, if, yeah. but if you're just a writer, then fine. I mean, if you right. write novels or, yeah, I guess, whatever. Hemingway was in a war, I think. Yeah, I, well, I'll, I'll, yeah, I mean... Well, Several. and his works weren't that emotional, so that doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to stay away from, from the Hemingway comparison as, as best I can, but but I will say that I think that what I'm doing is for sure journalism because if I wanted to if I wanted to give the emotional narrative, if I wanted to sell a romantic story, then my the smart thing to do would be to solely cover the opposition and then write that narrative as it's being sold. But what I have done, especially in the last month, is I wrote, well, one very scathing article about Guaido and the opposition and the failures of that opposition and what, why I think, you know, they've, they've lied to a certain extent and failed to several extents. Uh, the opposition. The, the opposition, yes. Yeah, because you were one of the first journalists to got to interview uh, Guaido. Guaido. Yes. Guaido. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I did that on my first trip. And then after my third trip, you know, seeing how things change, and especially after what happened at the border on the 23rd of February, um, again, you know, with both brain and emotion, I could see that something was tangibly different in the country and how people felt about the opposition. And then learning more about the history of the work that, that the opposition had done, I wrote a very long article for the Daily Beast about what I thought was basically Guaido dropping the ball. And if I feel like I've received hatred now from the Chavistas, it's nothing compared from, from what I received from, you know, the opposition then, because of course they felt that I had failed them, that yes. I should be on a certain side and I was not. And I got the same type of hatred when I went into La Pietrita and met with the top colectivo boss in Venezuela. And when I sat down and spoke with him, because they thought me being in that room was selling out me sell, me being there was siding with evil basically and 
So I think that you can be emotional because I am emotional about Venezuela. I am emotional when I see things that evoke human emotion, but I also think that it's the most effective type of journalism because today everyone is flooded with information, but you need to sell the story and you need to sell it, come at people like a human being. And for better or worse, like all my flaws are out at any given time. I'm really telling stories in real time and I'm doing it as a person experiencing it in real time. And I think that's why it's very effective. And I think also that's why it's perceived as quite threatening by certain people because I'm alone out there. I go out alone and I'm experiencing and learning and asking questions as anyone would in that position. And I don't think it takes away from my journalistic effort, not at all, because, you know, I adhere to the rule of sourcing. I, you know, I am fair and balanced more than most, to be honest, uh, especially when it comes to Venezuela. But yeah, I've been, you know, I've been photographed crying and laughing and dancing with Chavistas and, you know, hugging opposition because these are people and I relate to those people. And I show that there, like I said once and many times perhaps, is that there are a lot of, of colors in, in Venezuela and none of them are black and white. And nor, you know, there are nor, no black and whites in these stories, unfortunately. No unequivocally good and bad. It's, it's just a really fractured and broken society. And that's why it's important to be there. So how is press freedom in Venezuela at the moment? Well, I mean, I was deported. <laughs> Well, so, I, I mean, for uh, internal media. Oh, I mean, anything that I go through is nothing compared to what my colleagues go through on the ground, of course, because for whatever reason, you know, I have a certain amount of, of security with a Swedish passport, with being able to reach much further than most Venezuelan journalists can. And the things that happen in the cover of darkness, we know, are, you know, somewhere between horrible and despicable. And, and for them, you know, it's everything from threats, outright violence. There is no, there is no freedom of press there. And I think that's, I think they're ranked now 149th out of 180 on the freedom press, um, uh, freedom house list of press freedom, if I'm not 148th or 149th. And they've been dropping for the past two years. On that. Do you know that. when the Orinoco Tribune was started? I don't. In you know a lot of this. Yeah. 2018. When? Really? Yes. Hmm. Well, isn't that... Um, so they have almost a full year of reporting uh, be, uh, behind them now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, do you know who finances it? I can't believe that you've done this research in, what, 12 hours? No, go on. Well, it seems to be a regime-funded effort. Right. Well, I mean, because the original article is from Mission Verdad, so it's not that the fact that it got translated in the first place was a little bit, you know... It seems should... like the Orinoco Tribune uh, does that. It uh, curates uh, Spanish articles mm -hmm. into English. Right. And uh, they seem to have uh, what I would call a leftist bias. Oh. They're goddamn know? communists. Mm, I would see. Okay. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, this is this is part of the effort now, and I mean, this is what people do on on all sides, I guess. But this war of information, the reason why it's important for for us, for my colleagues and I, to be there and be in other places in the world where where it's sort of this black black spot on on the media map, 
is because this is a very effective way to oppress a people, um, to sustain a government, to, to keep people in the dark, literally and figuratively, is to cut them off from the rest of the world. And it's also the reason why I, I call them out, why I said that, you know, I will meet with anybody, but you need to allow me in if you claim, as they do, to have freedom of press. The one of the top ministers um, gave a statement right after I was deported. I think a few hours afterwards when he saw that this was getting a lot of press. And he said, well, we have 50 accredited journalists in Venezuela. And then, of course, I replied. I said, well, I know which outlets they are representing. Right. Like these are press TV. This is this is RT. This is, you know they would have a bias. And I said, this is not the measure of, of freedom. The, the measure of freedom is to let people in who wouldn't necessarily agree with you to have transparency. And, and I still hold to that. And, like, uh, yeah. And Venezuela as a country is sort of imploding at the moment. Right. I mean, I the mean, migrant crisis is huge. Uh, malaria is spreading like wildfire, apparently, according to the financial times. Well, first of all, I mean, you have 10% of the population outside of the country now. Like that's the extent of the of the crisis, you know, the the migration crisis that they are flooding the borders and fleeing if they can, right? And then, of course, you have no water, um, hardly any electricity, at least in the past month. And when I was there, there were five consecutive days of blackouts, and then you know blackouts that that come and go, uh, and it seems like almost rolling blackouts at this point, like they do in South Africa. Um, to maintain the system. So they have blackouts from 5 p.m. every day, for example. And then, of course, you have no medicine. You have no morgues because, you know, so you have a crisis that becomes this humanitarian catastrophe, right? Um, you have violence. You have systemic violence. You have paramilitary. I mean, the list goes on and on. You have no cash, right? Yep. You but have they no have a shitload of oil. Yeah, but then they have no way of refining. So if you have no way of refining it, if you have no system, if that system is broken, you have no way of, of generating income to your country, then what? Then what is it worth, really? Uh, nothing. If the, it just... Right. If the infrastructure is, is damaged or, or completely broken, then you, you have no revenue. So, of course, yes, the crisis, I think even at a certain point, the government will say they, they will also admit that there is a crisis. It's just that they have a different, let's say, position on who caused that crisis and why there are blackouts, for example, you know, during the five days that I was there and there were, you know, constant blackouts. They said that this is the imperialists who have ruined our electrical grid. But that's how they see it. You know that, don't you? I mean, they see it as on one side, you have uh, uh, the Chavistas, right? Uh, right. And uh, they are supported by Russia, Iran and Hezbollah, according to you. Well, Well, Iran is, this is a more complicated discussion because they're not actively supported by Hezbollah. Hezbollah existing in Venezuela is more perhaps a sign of Iranian support rather than direct support from Hezbollah. I mean, I know it's like a technical, but it matters. No, it's important. And it's please, important. Uh, don't be afraid to get complicated. I think my <laughs> listeners are quite smart. <laughs> oh, is that? Yeah, well, I've noticed. I've noticed because they seem to like me last time, which means that they're automatically, you know, brilliant. <laughs> Yes, well, um, in your case, I, I, I understand that you view the world that way. I do not. But, no, um, Okay, I'm not going to get into will that. get you absolutely nowhere. Uh, criticism will get you everywhere with me. Oh, um, I see, I see. Okay, well, I'm just going to leave that to the side. 
yeah. um, but, for now. But and on the other side, you have like, you know, when they see the imperialists in their view is the United States, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where they bunched you in now with Sheldon Adelson and ExxonMobil and uh, Shell right. Corporation. Well, I mean, the... the the line that they drew between me and, and Sheldon Adelson is, of course, uh, beyond the obvious, which is then the Jew thing, right? Which is seems to We're be. We're going to get to that, Annika. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, don't worry about it. For me to to you know circumvent this in any way, but but the point is that I understand the worldview. What I'm trying to do is is push, because I'm not I'm not involved in an ideological war, and I think that's Are well. You I'm sure? actually. You are a Zionist neoconservative. Well, I am a conservative, not technically a neoconservative on all counts, but I will not say I'm not according to the Orinoco Tribune. Well, I mean, how about the horse's mouth right here, right? Because yeah. I am actually, to a large extent, I'm I'm more of a straight down the line classical liberal than I am anything else, which means that I'm not in favor of foreign intervention in a lot of cases. I'm in favor of freedom, perhaps not absolute freedom, but pretty damn close. So I'm a, yes, I'm a conservative, very openly and proudly a conservative, but that's not the flag I fly in my professional endeavor. And I think this is what people have to understand that everyone, every journalist walks into their profession carrying all of this internal bias. Yes. But what we do as journalists is that we try to overcome that bias Sometimes we do a good job. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes it shines through. Yes, this is the human condition. But nowhere, I think I'm I'm quite proud of the work I've done in Venezuela because I've tried to keep my humility as far as I don't know that country. I am getting to know that country. I'm just trying to report what I see right before me and place it in front of the world and say, there you go. Like, this is what I've been trying to do. And when I state an opinion, I've been very, very clear that this is my personal opinion. And to tie to, I mean, this is a tightrope. This is a tightrope act, and especially in a place like Venezuela. But I don't walk in and say, hey, I'm going to do some, you know, Zionist conservative reporting. And very rarely, you know, do I even mention the Jew thing. Um, I try to stay away from it. Other people like to talk about me as a Jew, though. But well. But, it becomes sort of an issue for people for some reason. I mean, yeah, it's a constant issue for people as we we've seen in the past 24 hours. I mean, that issue is more alive than ever, but you know, I don't walk into my work that way. Could you explain in your own words, what the problem with Orinoco Tribune's uh, little P the character assassination of you? (laughs) Thank you Uh, for calling a spade a spade. Yeah. Yes. What the issue is with it. Yes. That it is just that. that no, I, I, I would say it's more than that. I would say it's an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Well, naturally. But this is these are things that you and I, I think, you kind of walk into the world expecting that. If you are a Jew doing of anything course. semi-public... But I have listeners and you have viewers, so okay. please explain. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, I will say, okay, so what's the issue? The issue is, of course, that I am being told that as a Jew, I come with bias that I come with that I'm filth basically that what I do is spread filth and that I spread an agenda and that I try to ruin the world as a part of this gigantic conspiracy that apparently I belong to right yes so that's at the heart of it 
And beyond, you know, the anti-Semitism of it all upsetting me, it also kind of falls flat on its face if you try to pick at it. Because what has happened to me during my time in Venezuela proves that I have very little power. I mean, that could be said for Jews as a group, as a whole, given what we've been through, through millennia, that if we had that power, would we, are there not a few things in history that we would have tried to prevent? You know, such... And if we did control the media, then Palestine wouldn't be so celebrated in the West. Right. And And if I had all this power, if I was a Mossad agent, would I have been deported? Would I have been put through what I've been put through, given what they, you know, how they feel and think about the Mossad? I mean, all of this is, it's frustrating because what you're doing is you are fighting with absurdity. Every day you are fighting with something that you think, oh, this is so blatantly untrue. That why would people believe it? But then you wake up to, you know, 125 Google alerts with people saying, wait just a minute. This woman has worked in Iran, in Siberia, in all of these places. Why would she? And for them, the logical conclusion is apparently that I am a spy, that I am carrying an, an agenda. And it is exhausting. The least is- discreet, most emotional spy I've ever met. Cover. <laughs> yeah, and it's also, you know, that, and I guess that's sort of my point, because you try so hard to cover all sides, but you kind of, you're pulled back to this ground zero of you are a Jew, ergo, you can do no right. You are always filth. And of course, you know, if I were prone to emotional outbursts, I would be very upset by that. But, <laughs> yes. you know. So uh, <laughs> have, you, have you read the article about you? I have, yes. Uh, because, I mean, I, 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 the headline alone, I, say, I, I would say, is uh, um, quite obviously not uh, politically correct in most part, <laughs> parts of the world. Uh, the Zionist plot between a Swedish journalist in Venezuela, Abrams, and Trump. Right. So, so how close are you to Donald Trump? How close am I? Have I ever met the man? No. Uh, could I ever get him on the phone? No. Uh, would he know my name? No. Um, how close am I to Elliot Abrams? The, the connection between me and Elliot Abrams is the Tikva Fund. Yes. He is, he is on the board um, of the Tikva Fund. I studied at the Tikva Fund. And that's, that's it. it. Yeah. Right. And but so the it, same but thing. But in their article... Uh, you are now, if I read it correctly, mm-hmm. you're being deported, and ac- according to you, without cause, according to them, because you've taken sides uh, in mm-hmm. the conflict, and um, and because uh, you work directly with Abrams and Trump to destabilize Venezuela so that ExxonMobil can take over. Wow. I mean, first of all, again, all of this power that I supposedly have, um, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? Um, I mean, I would probably earn a lot more, and that part would be amazing. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, as of now, I'm probably sort of 5K in the hole after doing this, you know. So, so yeah, that part would be great. But, no, this is, this is what I mean about fighting with absurdity, because what do I say? How do you prove a negative? Like, I don't know where to go from that. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of... Uh have you stopped beating your wife sort of question? It is. It is. And, and not only that, I mean, 
I guess the point is that the work that journalists do, free nations welcome that. It's, they sort of see it as a point of pride to be covered in the media. Uh, which are those nations? Because I'd like to... <laughs> no, no, no. Don't. I'm trying to not get any more enemies. Like, this okay. is whatever I say. Like, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. So keep me away from controversy. I'm trying real hard here, you know, to be good, to lay low. Um, but th- this is, of course, we are the canary in the coal mine. Like, that's, that's just what it is. Because once, when you start mistreating us, when you start shutting us out, that is a telltale sign that something is up. And so my message, as I thought, and I thought it was very clear, is let me in. If you are the things that you say, if you stand for the things that you say, let me in. Because my presence there is proof of your theory. Mm-hmm. Allowing me to do work proves that you, your words are true. And Shutting me out disproves it. And it's so simple. And all of this, all of these smoke and mirrors, the Zionist, the plot, the Trump, you know, it's par for the course. I understand that. But it kind of doesn't look good. I understand that it's a method, but it's broken. It's a Yeah, I, I, I would say they, they've burned you pretty well now. I, I kind of feel like you should be on my side in this and just like, oh, give- I am on your side in this. <laughs> uh, no, I understand. But what I mean is, yes, they burn me for the but people. But unlike you, I can turn off my emotions and just ask questions. Oh, Lord. Yeah. This is going to turn into a whole female joking, male thing. I'm you know, joking, man. Annika. I have no emotions to turn off. <laughs> uh, I know that, but we won't go into it. My point is that, that yes, it proves it may prove a point to people who, who didn't need it in the first place. Like if this is your bias is if this is how you feel about Jews, you are going to feel this way about Jews no matter what. Yeah. Pretty I much. don't think me entering the country or exiting it makes that big a difference or an article from wherever makes that big a difference. Because if you think that Jews are evil and that we are part of plots, wherever we go, that's your world, baby. Like that's between you and your God. But and I was and I was wondering if this is what they translate into English. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's do a pretty their newspapers I read it in look Spanish. like normally. What? I read it in Spanish, by the way. So. And how was that? No, no, no. It's a literal translation. It's, it is. It's a pretty, pretty literal translation. And I've also seen because, of course, I get pinged when my name appears and everything. I've seen what they say on. They're a bit ruder. Like there were more sexual innuendos on Twitter, I will say, more having to do with who they think I sleep with and why. <clears throat> There's more of a honey trap component on the Twitter. That's <laughs> Twitter. how Mossad generally works, apparently, according well, to Well, I'm that. just going to take it as a compliment. If they think I'm hot enough at this point to be a honey trap, you know, God bless you. But, <laughs> but, but other than that, like, this is what it is. This is what they're saying. And these are the connections that they're making. And I guess me trying to prove it, it's incredibly naive. And maybe me being there and my work has been naive to begin with. I don't know. A, a lot of people would probably say so. And that my efforts now, not to clear my name, because I don't really accept the premise, but just to sort of state my case that that's, idiotic to begin with but it still means something because it's important to prove that this is part of the method to place 
10,000 individuals, you know, and make it look like this is a wave. That is a method used by people, states, organizations um, to, you know, to chase people out of business, to chase them out of countries. And it's kind of important to to make people aware of that. Well, running countries is big business, especially if it sits on wealth in oil. Right. And the, and the point is, and what, which I think is interesting, is that I've kind of made that point to begin with. I've also made the point, you know, I've, I've talked pretty anti-intervention at several points. I've, you know, I've made the comparisons with Iraq. And yet, you know, there are people, perhaps it's because, you know, my visibility and, of course, all this emotion and whatever, my, my presence, which makes me a threat. But... I am not the most scandalous person in that country saying the most scandalous things. That's, that's for damn sure. Um, so, you know, I don't want to well, say... Well, I read your pieces from the first two trips, uh, and uh, I see it as you, through your, you know, usually uh, emotional state, uh, mm-hmm. you seem to have a soft spot for starving children, for instance. Yeah, yeah no, that is, you know, those of us who, who, who have emotions, that tends to kind of rile them up. You know, uh, it stirs it. It stirs something inside of us. And of course, I mean, I think the reason that that people were interested in my work is that I went there blind. I went to Venezuela for the first time and I reacted in real time to some things that were more upsetting that than I can even describe, you know, and I posted photos of things happening right in front of me and I reacted to them in a very emotional way. And I think that kind of hits you right in the ticker as it hits me in the ticker. And that's, that's part of what storytelling is. And journalism, at least in my mind, perhaps not in yours, is storytelling. No, I, I don't believe in objective journalism at all. That's <laughs> why I'm not a journalist. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but, um, and, and what you saw is still real because... I mean, you can read about it in other news outlets right, as well. Right, it can be verified. And, and also today, because, you know, there, uh, we're a dime a dozen. Journalists are a dime a dozen now. And, and you go to a specific journalist and you follow a specific journalist because of the way we tell a story. And that's just it. And I, I would make the case that perhaps there's not enough emotion. That when you see something that is objectively horrifying... Maybe it's okay to say that, holy shit, this is objectively horrifying and this breaks my heart. And, and that's what I've been doing throughout all of this. And, and I think it works. I think it's important. So do I. That's why I'm interviewing you. <laughs> uh, but um, so, uh, and the situation in the country is, catast- is a catastrophe. It is a catastrophe. Point. And it, it doesn't seem to be solving itself in any way. No, and it's getting, I mean, I would say now there are foreign actors, and I mean, foreign actors have been involved for a very long time, but now I guess, you know, the What EU, do you mean when you say foreign actors? I mean foreign presence in the country and foreign interest in the crisis, meaning but, that... But do you every, mean foreign military presence? Yeah, and, and there has been foreign military presence there for a long time. You have your Cubans, you have your Colombians, you have your Russians, Right. Because when people say, oh, we don't want foreign military in Venezuela, it's important also to remember that what they're saying, really, between the lines is they don't want Americans there. 
Yeah. Because there is foreign military. I mean, at this point, there are 200 Russian troops and a lot more technical personnel helping to build their um, anti-missile defense system, all of these things, helping to build the infrastructure of the military. You have your Cubans there who have been there for a long time. So, of course, there's been and you have uh, Iranian presence by proxy there as well. So it's not as if foreign actors haven't been in Venezuela for a long time. So Russia is doing state building there. Basically, yeah, and building. they're protecting, you know, considerable investment and debt that they have in the country. And they've always been tough with like real politic people. Like, it's not as if I think Vladimir Putin, he's one of those non-emotion people, I would yeah. say, that what he's doing is protecting an investment and future investments as well. And so you do what you can to support any actor that signals stability. And as of now, um, because Guaido has been unable to project stability and strength, and that's on him, and that's on the opposition, I would say, for sure. Um, that's that's his fault and their fault. They have been unable to project that, that stability. And if they did, I'm sure a lot of people would swap sides. But as of now, that's not what's happening. That's not the trend. And, and now, what's, you know, your, what's your take on the relationship between Colombia and Venezuela at the moment? Well, I mean, it's... This is a complicated, because of course you have a million and a half Venezuelans, first of all, living in, in, in Colombia. You have sort of, a, of an official stance of non-relationship between, between the two countries. And you've seen Colombia go through something that possibly Venezuela could down the line, that uh, a planned Colombia could happen in Venezuela. I mean, a lot of people say, and I might be one of them, that that's, that's the only that's the only possible route to rebuild, no matter who's in charge. Like, let's put that to the side. No matter who's in charge, you're still, you still have an incredibly broken country, uh, no matter what you think that reason for that is. And you need to rebuild it. And you don't have the infrastructure inside of the country to do that right now. So you need some sort of help. Some would say that, oh, we can use the Russians for that. Other would say that the Americans are, are the optimal choice. And now the EU is getting involved, but you know the EU is going to be the EU. So, what do you mean by that? I, mean I know that, what I would mean by that, but <laughs> what do you mean? I mean that it's a useless paper tiger that does nothing and costs us everything. Yes, is that clear enough? It costs us. It delays other people. Right. Uh, yeah, and it's it's um, it's a meeting. It's a it creates you know it's a committee. It's a big colossus of a committee. And we all knew that know that committees do nothing. And I actually ran into their, you know, special envoys at a hotel. And to me, it's very clear. And in the help that I'm trying to, to get from the EU and the Swedish State Department, it's very clear that, you know, there is no on the ground help. They're taking meetings and they're drinking coffee. And, and God knows, you know, I assume nothing. And since you're a Swedish citizen, you're talking about the Swedish State Department. Right. Yeah, but also because so I'm a they citizen. offered you help, I guess. Oh, they did not. No. And, <laughs> no. And I very actively requested it. I mean, twice I requested it. Once in a situation that where I was in in danger, and that I, for various reasons, won't discuss. But but I was I requested direct help because there is no. Long story short, there is no embassy in Venezuela. The closest embassy is in Bogota. They have. Um, a consulate, but it's an honorary consulate, which means that you have no diplomatic immunity. You can't walk into that door and be safe. It's an office like any other office. Right. But I happened to meet the diplomatic envoys 
when they were having a meeting with the government and the opposition, and we were at the same hotel. And so I ambushed them at breakfast when I had run into a slight bit of trouble on one of my trips. And I said to them, you know, what are my options? What can you do for me? And their answer was, because at that point I asked them point blank, if I ever got into a lot of trouble, would you fly me out? Could you take me with you? And, and they, they said, we have the highest taxes in the world. Of course, you'll get a private course, jet. Because you're paying through the nose. Yeah. You know, we'll get you a first class ticket. So oh, nothing. If only, inshallah. No, what they said to me was that what you, we understand your predicament. That was the first thing. And that this is a very difficult situation for you. But we are not able to bring you to the airport with us because you don't have a diplomatic passport. And I then said, well, all I ask is to go to the airport with you. Basically just walk into the line with you and buy whatever security I can through just being surrounded by diplomats. And they said, well, actually that could make things very complicated for us. And that could make our relationship with the government deteriorate. And we wouldn't want to put ourselves in that position. But we will investigate if maybe Spain are able to take you because since, well, because as a member of the EU, if, you, if you're in a country and there is no, if you don't have an embassy of your own in a country, then you can request help from another EU uh, member country. And because Spain has been helpful to journalists in the past, they said, well, we'll try and make some calls and see if maybe Spain can help you. So, of course, nothing came out of that. And then after my deportation, one of the first things I did was I called the State Department and I spoke to the people who are responsible for the Americas there and I explained what had happened. And they told me that um, not only were they unaware, but that there apparently is a clause that says that Venezuela is supposed to contact them. Like this is the custom that if they are deporting someone because they have diplomatic relations, you know, they are supposed to give a courtesy call and say, by the way. We deported one of your citizens. That never took place. So I wrote them an official letter and explained exactly what had happened and said, I would like you to make a statement condemning my deportation and to show that you are on the side of not only Swedish citizens, but of journalists and the work that we do and the values that we represent. And I said to them very clearly that because you say that you're a humanitarian superpower, and that this is something that the State Department, you know, has complete mentionitis about and can't shut up about, I would expect you to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. And I got a letter back that I also shared with you that uh, it, was a, it was a form letter. It was basically a form letter. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, they offered no help whatsoever. No, and it was very clear that they're not going to make a statement. And they also said that, you know, if you get into an acute type of trouble, then you can call uh, the hotline in Stockholm. But, but what I read, uh, and, and uh, the screen dumps you sent me, they are in Swedish, so it's uh, no point in me reading them out loud. Right. But, but um, uh, what I read in the letter, well, you have asked them to make a statement, but also to clear your name, right? Yeah. And the point is, of course, because I, I said to them that I am the victim of slander at this point, and I was, I was treated like a criminal. And it was not just humiliating, but it was also without grounds because I have done nothing criminal. And now no you can do your job because everyone will think you're a Mossad agent. Exactly. So this has a number of implications and it's important for the state. I mean, that's the role. 
And to I have to with. say, really, when it comes to the Orinoco Tribune, that it's uh, one of the most obvious uh, anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories in modern <laughs> in in modern form I've seen this week because I see quite <laughs> I see quite a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, there's in the US they have this game, you know, six degrees of separation. Mm-hmm. Sure. And in this case, they've done that to you. They right. like. Her name is Annika. She's yeah. Swedish. Uh, Trump has talked about Sweden. She's in yeah. bed with Trump. Right. Uh, and, 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 and I mean, as you said, you have never met most of the people on the board of directors of the Tikva Fund, I guess. I have met zero of them, is my yes. point. That this is not something you do when you are a student in an institution. It's not like you schmooze with the people who are there in name only, who get paid to be there in name only, to give credibility to that institution. That's not something that happens. And, you know, you're saying it sounds like a joke and sounds like hyperbole, but that's actually what they did. They see me hugging this opposition member in a picture and then they say that I'm sleeping with him. Like this is this is what they do. And I would laugh about it unless, you know, unless it wasn't heartbreakingly real to me. And this is why I said what I said to the State Department, because this is their actual job. This is what they get paid to do. I am a journalist. And as they wrote in this horrendous form letter that, oh, we care so much about human rights. We care so much about freedom. We care so much about Venezuela. And what I'm saying is, hey, here I am. You know, here I am. I'm ticking all of these boxes. And what I'm saying is stand by me. Stand by my side. And say that, A, you know, you should not deport journalists simply for doing their jobs when they're not breaking the law. And B, this is an anti-Semitic <laughs> slander campaign against the Swedish journalist, against the Swedish citizen and a member of the EU. And this is unacceptable. And they're doing none of those things. Well, basically, they are calling you a Jewish whore. Yes. Well, that's... And I, I don't want to be uh, rude or anything, but that's no, what no, no. Doing. Oh, I've seen so much wars on the internet in the past week, you know, and you know during my lifetime. But yeah, that's what they're doing. They're saying that I'm a Jewish whore, and also I assume the implication of the Zionist thing is some, you know, imperialist murderer Zionist something or other. Like it's all in there. It's all yeah. baked in this horrendous cake that they're serving up to the world, and. This, even though it is expected when you're a Jew anywhere and you're a Jew somewhat publicly, you know that this is going to be thrown at you. But in this case, after being in putting myself in personal danger time after time to to tell the truth to the world, and this is what you get, like enough is enough at a certain point. So what are you going to do now? What am I going to do? You mean in general? Well, yeah, you're out of a job. You're burned. (laughs) The rule is always to continue to do your job. You um, you find a way to do your job. I'm I'm trying to help clear your name here, but I don't know if I'm doing an okay job <laughs> or not. No, no, no. I think it's good. I think I think that's good. It's it's just the right level of pushback too, which is good. I think. Well, I mean, the step one is as for any freelancer, I'm going to try and sort of recoup my losses, lick my wounds, and recoup my losses. Um, because they have been significant in the past month and especially with this trip. Um, so that, that sucks. And then you keep doing what you're doing. You know, I've proven so far that I have, you know, I'm a bulldog, I guess, in the sense that, you know, I kind of, I bite down and, and I don't let go. And if I have a story that I care about, I'll, I'll pursue it. 
and I'll find ways of pursuing it. And that's what I'm working on right now, because the issue with this is, of course, that when they try to stop you from doing your job, it proves that you need to keep doing your job. Yeah, it is quite impressive. I must say that they considered you a, thre- uh, a national threat. Right. I guess that says something about the work I've done so far. Um, and it is like the worst compliment ever and the best compliment ever. Yeah. You know? um, but it proves, I mean, this is why I went there in the first place, right? Like you try to, to pour some light into the dark places on the map and you try to do good things. And I guess despite some people disagreeing with it, that it is a cause. There is a cause attached to this, and that is caring about freedom, caring about freedom of speech, and caring about telling stories that otherwise would go untold. And I need to keep doing that because that's important. And, you know. Absolutely, because also, I mean, since I spoke to you last, not Mm-hmm. Not just a few minutes ago where you know right. everything went to hell, but uh, I mean, yeah. uh, the world media has sort of gone silent about Venezuela. Right. It, doesn't, it doesn't really care anymore because there seems to be no solution in sight. Yeah, and I, I think that's, I mean, Venezuela is not the only place that suffers from this. Obviously, it's just the place that I chose for now to cover. But what's what's heartbreaking is, of course, when I'm there... Walking, just walking in the street or sitting in a cafe, people, locals come up to me and literally hug me and thank me for being there because no one is talking. They're not the sexy issue anymore and they know it. And they are so like, this is just darkness. It's just perpetual darkness for them and whatever we can do. And that's, that's our role, I guess, as pompous and horrible as it sounds like this is why we do what we do. It's not very sexy and glamorous. But you you got to care, and that's where the heart comes into it. That if you don't feel the way that I do about these issues, if you don't lead with your heart first, your brain will tell you that it's not worth it. Trust me. Considering that, you know, I'm, I'm getting burnt all over the place. I'm losing money. I'm losing, you know, all kinds of things covering this. If I didn't have any heart in it, I would go to an easier place. And I would cover something that is immediately sexy and more zeitgeisty. Well, I, I do hope you continue, uh, and I hope you get to get uh, in, invited back to Venezuela at some point in the future when things hopefully get a little bit better. Well, I'm offering, every day on Twitter, I'm offering them, a, you know, an extended hand saying, you know, here I am, I'm ready, my bags are packed, so... so who are you tagging in that tweet? Is it the Venezuelan embassy or the government? No, no, or? no. I'm, I'm to the people that matter to uh, Maduro, Diosdado, anyone who will listen to say that I am ready to interview you and everybody who works for you on your terms. Like you say, you know, you, you say that this is that you welcome journalists and that this is a free society. Well, you know, why don't invite the biggest big mouth visible Jewess and prove that point. Well, they don't want to be, uh, I guess, um, surrounded with rumors about having a, a very gorgeous Jewish Swedish lover. Oh yeah, no. I mean, believe me, it can benefit you in all kinds of ways. So I'm I'm offering my olive branch, and you know, 
all that innuendo, that internet innuendo kind of comes with it. And I'm ready to go at any time. Like I'm at least for now, I may be, you know, thick as bricks, but I'm keeping at it. And as of yet, I haven't given up on it. So we'll see. I hope you don't, Annika, and thank you again for uh, revisiting for the third time in a season. Now you've yeah. broken the record. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm more than honored, and I thoroughly enjoy it. Thank you for listening to Deconstructed Criticism with today's guest, Annika Hanrud-Rothstein. My name is Aaron Flam, and if you want to know more about me, you are more than welcome to go to www.aaronflam.com, where you can buy t-shirts or donate money at, for instance, Swish 0768-943737. 0768-943737. And that's just for the Swedish speakers. If you want to support me as a non-Swedish non-Swedish speaker, you are more than welcome to. You can do that via Patreon, PayPal or Bitcoin. Until next time, have a good unit of time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.